Welcome to the Speaking Light into Abortion podcast, where I talk about all the reasons it's possible for you to thrive after your abortion. I'm your host, Amanda Kingsley, and two years after my own abortion, I certified as a life coach so I could serve women after abortion in all the ways they've been deserving and lacking for centuries. Consider this your launchpad for finding strength and community in yourselves and in each other. All right, podcast, um, podcast recording with more story. I've recorded so many story episodes this year and I still haven't accepted that I've recorded so many story episodes. I'm like, we're doing oh, this. We're still telling you, a lot of story. <laughs> sometimes you you do more of like a, a research or something. Yeah. A lot of the episodes I've recorded in the first two and a half years were like more healing tools and modalities. And just this year has been a lot of story. And I've said that like five times on the podcast, but I guess I still haven't let it sink in. So here we are with more story. And I think it's so important. It's so necessary. There really are not two stories that are the same. So every time we get to hear a new story, talk about a new story, um, we help somebody else do healing work. Uh, Story is healing work. (laughs) I've gotten so deep into podcasts and the pandemic and yeah. Um, it's been interesting to watch myself gravitate towards certain podcasts that I didn't expect to and then realize, oh, there's a reason why I've been listening to this one. Yeah. And there's a couple I've really, I mean, I listen to silly ones about TV shows and stuff, but there've been a few that have literally had epiphanies after listening to five or six episodes being like, right. Like I could be on this podcast and, um, and this is podcast is teaching me things that I resonate with, but wasn't even recognizing that I resonated yeah, with. Yeah. You know what I mean? I love podcasting. Um, I actually stepped out of my comfort zone this weekend because I usually am here behind the screen, podcasting, creating content, writing. Um, and this weekend I organized like a in-person gathering uh, awesome. for Independence Day because, you know, we all have feelings about what that meant to be an independent person yeah, uh, or not. (laughs) So um, I love podcasting. It's definitely my comfort zone and I love listening to podcasts, but it was a good challenge to go out of my comfort zone and be in person with people. Um, And it came out really beautifully. I bet it, I bet it fed a different, different aspect of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It was really lovely. Okay. Well, welcome Rose. Um, we are semi-local to each other. I mean, this, yep. this podcast reaches a global audience. So in that sense, we are very local to each other. That's right. um, and we've met each other in and out of different circles along the way. Um, and you offered to come on and share your story and perspective around the abortion conversation. So the table is yours to do that. Um, okay. And then I think um, where it goes. I think my where I come to it is maybe I'm, I'm certainly not the only one but um, I would say there's there's a smaller number of folks that have both um, I personally have had a um, medically induced abortion when I was in my 20s yeah um, after after the birth of my first son and then I um, relinquished a child um, to adoption and so mm-hmm. I, I find it very interesting when people weaponize um, well, you could, you know, you could just give it up. There's plenty of people who want children. Um, 
and without understanding the nuances of that yeah um it's a lot more public to carry a child to term mm -hmm. and relinquish than it is to have a, a quick appointment or you know a couple of medical appointments in the privacy of a provider mm -hmm. um and I think abortion, at least we're lucky enough to live um, in a state that provides them without a lot of rules, at least so far in yeah. my lifetime, yeah. regarding parental consent. Um, there's funds. I, you know, I, I think when I did mine, I received um, partial funding because um, it wasn't covered by insurance and I was able to dip into some sort of pot and I only paid a small amount, yeah. um, which, you know, made it very private and I was able to I actually went to a local festival that day with my mm. then boyfriend and you know he I don't feel well he took me home I went to bed and did I think about it from time to time over the years of course yeah but I was um not in a committed relationship I wasn't living with my boyfriend at the time I was co-parenting with my oldest father and that was a new co-parenting relationship there was nothing that really spoke to me and said, this is the right time for your second child. Yeah. Um, and then I had two children um, very much wanted actually eight years to the date of my oldest son being born. Um, I went into labor on his birthday, his eighth birthday. <sighs> and then my son was born um, at 1234. So one, two, three, four. Oh, that's uh, a big number in our after. house. <laughs> yeah. The day after, 34 minutes after, so they each had their own birthday, but by 34 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then um, I made another, I will call it hasty decision, mm -hmm. but to um, quickly have another child because I wanted, because I'd had such a large gap with the, sec the first two, I wanted to just, I knew I wanted three and I wanted to um, have them, you know, launch quicker. So I, my logic yeah. was let's have them back to back. Yeah. I don't think I acknowledge two really pretty big factors, um, uh -huh. which was, I was not with the right person and it was a, it was going to be a physical toll. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I'd had a little bit of postpartum issues with my first, I knew that there would be, um, and um, I knew it was going to be difficult, um, to juggle two kids and a full-time job and a house. I didn't quite, um, for some reason I did, it didn't click because I'd had fairly, I mean, my, my second delivery was tough, but I'd had fairly easy pregnancies. Um, and I just didn't kind of, I think, give my body a time to heal. Um, mm. and my, honestly, my third was my easiest delivery, but, um, I was depleted and I was mm -hmm. in a relationship that was, um, and became incredibly dangerous, mm -hmm. um, physically and emotionally for everyone mm -hmm. right down to the dog. Um, so I had my ex removed from our home when my youngest was six weeks old mm -hmm. and that's how bad it was because I think most people would say, let's hold on a little bit more. I have an infant, a toddler, a full-time job, a house. I had purchased a car that he was trying, I mean, there was so much to undo, but I was like, I, it became so clear to me that if I was going to be with someone who was saying that they wanted the same things as mm -hmm. me, which was a family and a successful family, healthy family, but was gaslighting me to the point where they were literally stealing from me 
neglecting the children unless we were in public and abusing me and using anything that he could get his hands on for his own gain and then gaslighting me left and right. And I, I just, it be, I became so, the tunnel vision became, I got to save myself and I got to save these two kids. Mm. And I did. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done because what they don't tell you or what no one ever told me is that abusers will then use the courts to abuse. Mm -hmm. If you remove yourself from their orbit, they will use the court system to abuse you any way they Mm -hmm. can because people who have that heart for abuse, they don't, they are not like, oh, I'm not going to use a court or I'm not going to use a bank account or, oh, I'm not going to use a car. They would literally use anything. Mm -hmm. So the more you take away access to yourself, your belongings, your children, your life, they will go to friends, they will cyberstalk, they will make false reports, they will switch jobs so often you never get a dime. You, I mean, I'm sure the listeners have been through these things. It's in every family. It's in, unfortunately, um, and that's where I get frustrated. Um, I mean, it just so happens, of course, that the Supreme Court decision came down recently and that was a bad day for me and I'm sure yeah yeah because um maybe what we don't want to talk about is that um impregnating your partner can be a tool of abuse Mm -hmm. and the first night that he hit me there was certainly abuse and emotional abuse and theft and things before but the first night he hit me was the the same day that I had told him I was pregnant with a second, Mm -hmm. literally the same night. And, and people don't want to, I, that's not something I like knowing that, Mm -hmm. that abuse goes up during moments of physical and emotional weakness, but predators will prey and they don't pick the strongest gazelle. Mm -hmm. When I met my ex, I had just lost my husband of five years to cancer and I was 26 years old and I was widowed with one child and I was a wreck mm-hmm. and there's sort of there's of course a million ways to deal with grief but what I've noticed is that there's two major types of ways that <laughs> that people deal with the loss of partner is one is you go party and the other ones you hide under a boulder mm. and I went I I wanted I had been in hospitals I had been working full-time to hold insurance I had I was tired and I wanted to be free oh, yeah. and I got picked off, got picked off a dating app. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was about me and it was not about me. It was about what I had. Um, and he just wasn't honest about who he was. And um, I tell all my friends and it's not, it used to be a joke. It's not a joke. Run a Corey report. Mm, yeah. It's $19. Right. I, I lost years of my life. I almost lost my life. Yeah. And I lost probably $30,000 in various legal fees and moving costs. And mm-hmm. not to mention, you know, my, my, I have a great husband now, but we're on the hook for, for financially raising these kids. And that's fine because we wanted the kids, but um, it's like, not only will I not help you raise these kids that I helped you make, I will try to make you weak. <laughs> 
try to take everything I can. And then it's going to cost a bunch of money to get rid of me because the courts are not designed. The courts, I hesitate to say the courts don't understand abuse. I think the courts understand physical abuse. Mm. I don't think the courts understand financial, emotional, uh, some, some, unfortunately, some types of sexual abuse is they don't understand. There's still this, this, uh, I had just a couple conversations with law enforcement that I was just like, am I in the twilight zone here? Yeah. He had a car that was registered to me, insured by me. I owned it. And I said, I I want the car back. I don't know what he's doing with that. It's in my name. I'm liable. And they said, well, it could have been a gift. I said, but it's in my name. They said, well, do you want to go get it? Do you want to drive down to Springfield and have your friend grab it? You have a key, right? It's yours. They wanted me to go out with my friend on the sidewalk in downtown Springfield and just steal my own car from someone who had been abusing me. Yeah. I haven't uh, had this conversation like on the I podcast. I said no. I passed. <laughs> right? I passed on that. Yeah, I passed on that. Um, I haven't had this conversation about, well, maybe a little bit in some, in some episodes about um, impregnating as a tool of abuse. Um, Mm -hmm. And as you continue to talk about the other ways of abuse, we also can forget that it's not like the only tool being used. It is one of many tools being used. And so it gets kind of buried under there and becomes even harder to imagine. The sheer sheer circumstances of my life meant I was tired. Yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't home because I had a full-time job and he Mm -hmm. would be home a lot. And I, I thank God didn't trust him full-time with my kids. And I had my kids in daycare, but what that meant is he had a lot of time and access to I mean, he used to order cell phones in my past, my, my husband who passed, I got a self, I I went, checked the mail and there was a cell phone in my dead husband's name that he had ordered for himself. I mean, things like that, where, where yes, he wanted the phone, but it was also traumatizing the way, you know, the way that he got it. Yeah. Um, He had been stealing. I used to get $40 out every Monday on the way home from work because I had a copay and then $20 spending money. It's just my little routine. And he started taking the $20 and he had me convinced that it was um, someone at my work. And it Mm -hmm. got to the point where I actually started to believe it. And I almost went to HR to say like, Hey, I think someone might be going in my wallet. And then I, all of a sudden it was like, of course it's not my good buddy from work. (laughs) So when you say, when that ruling came through and we realized the fate of Roe, mm-hmm. um, that was a bad day. It stirs up the reality that so many people don't understand. Like, well, to is- me, it's just literally carte blanche. Um, because I relinquished a child through private adoption, it wasn't, a, um, wasn't a, DCF and it was just I gave it to an agency without understanding how much people pay for infants and I about three or four months after relinquishment I really relinquished I gave birth alone and I relinquished the next morning 
I called mm-hmm. and they said, you're pregnant. And I said, no, I haven't, I have a baby. And um, it's not something I recommend. It's something I had to do because I was, uh, my ex knew that I was pregnant. It wasn't his child, but he knew that I was pregnant and he was, I didn't want my parents to know that I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And he was threatening to tell them. So I did not receive um, prenatal care. I took care of myself the way I knew how, and I gave birth alone at home with my kids. Um, mm-hmm. And like I said, I don't, I don't take that lightly. I know there's a movement um, where people are doing unassisted births. I believe that's, I don't, I, I don't fault myself for what I did. I, I would have called 911 if I, if I hit an emergency personally that would never be my choice again I respect women or birthing people who choose that for themselves I personally wouldn't like tell someone you should definitely try it yeah, yeah. it's lonely and it was a lack of care that led to that I mean I literally transitioned through a Trader Joe's frozen pizza in the oven for my kids went in the bathroom gave birth and then fed my kids and I just spent that I needed that one night with my baby and mm-hmm. I nursed him and I cut the cord myself and I my way of finding his people because I had thought of course about contacting agency before I gave birth and I just couldn't face it yeah and I you know where we live it's where where I was living at the time very rural so all I had was a landline and I was probably one of the last people on earth that still had a phone book that I used daily but I went into the yellow pages and I chose um Mm -hmm. I want to cry, but I chose the biggest ad, the mm-hmm. biggest paid for ad. Cause I figured those people had the wealthiest families. It was just, a, mm. just an idea. I think I was probably yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. And I called this place in, uh, out in the Boston area and, um, the woman kind of forced my hand into calling EMS, which I did not want to do because they're volunteers and they're part of my community. And I knew that people would find out, but she really didn't give me a choice. All I wanted her to do was show up at my house with a car seat in a car and drive the baby away. That's what I wanted. I would have met her at the hospital. I just didn't have an infant car seat. And she was like, she didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to drive from, I mean, what's it? Two, two and a half hours. She didn't want to do it. And she called dispatch and they called me and they Mm -hmm. said, we got this call. And I said, she kind of, she had kind of alluded to wanting to do that. Like, Hey, the, the ambulance has a car seat. And I'm like, no, they don't. They have an ambulance bed. Like, I've been in an ambulance before. They don't come equipped with car seats, but she was like, let them do it. You know, let them do the transport. And at that point, I, the woman said, is it okay if we come and get the baby? And I said, listen, I want the baby to be checked. This, I, what I wanted the woman to say was, yes, I'm coming. Mm-hmm. We'll talk on the way I'm coming or I'm sending someone safe. But instead the woman said, I said, fine. If you want to send the ambulance, send the ambulance. And she said, no, you have to say that this is what you want. Mm -hmm. And I realized she wanted me to say it on recorded line that I was agreeing. And I did. And one of the EMTs gave me a little crap about, you know, I kind of fudged and said, I didn't know I was pregnant. And I think everybody knew that what was really going on or that something happened, you know? And she said, well, why didn't you call us when the baby was born? And I wanted to say, get out the fuck out of my house. I mean, yeah. I just wanted to say, get, you know, go away. 
you know, we're here now. And I remember, I literally remember standing there. My kids are three and one and a half, something like that. And I remember being self-conscious that I hadn't vacuumed. (laughs) That's how hard I was being on myself. (laughs) Like there was popcorn in the carpet. And I was like, you know, and that was the biggest, the only reason I'm able to do this talk with you today is because it's taken me six years, seven years to forgive myself for doing what I did, which was literally the only thing I knew how to do. And I wasn't even at a place where I could face going, getting childcare for my kids and going and trying to obtain an abortion like I had before. And would that have been one heck of a lot simpler and done and dusted? Yes. But emotionally or just whatever, there was something that stopped me. Mm-hmm. And am I proud of myself for bringing us being onto the earth and he has a wonderful life? Yes. And will we meet again on earth? I, I would say most definitely. Um, I've seen him once since he was born um, when he was quite, quite young. And I, if they, if the, I know the parent, I'm in touch with, it's like semi-closed. I know where he is. I know who he's with. I know details about his life. Um, but there's been a lot of, there's a lot of tension I found between people who have children and have relinquished children and people who are infertile. And that's just a generalization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can empathize honestly with, um, people who wish to become pregnant and can't it's not something obviously that I've struggled with in my life yeah, yeah. but I certainly had friends that have struggled very hard to um, get and stay pregnant um, in a lot of respects I just consider myself a surrogate for that child um, mm-hmm. I had nothing left to give at the end of every day mm-hmm. and my life was very small at that point yeah. I I was a stay-at-home mom which has never been my dream I, we went to the library, the grocery store, you know, every two weeks, our big outing was going far so we could go to Trader Joe's. I mean, I had, I had to heal with my kids and we had to heal from what had gone on with their bio dad. And we still weren't out of court. There was still a chance that he he would have access to my kids. And so I had to insulate myself. I, and I didn't talk to many people towards the end of my pregnancy because I didn't want people to know that I was pregnant. Um, and I just trudged through it, Mm -hmm. but I get very upset and I did get very angry on Facebook last Monday. I I thought, thought, well, it was probably not visible to you because I was fighting with a Catholic priest I went to high school with. Mm. And I, (laughs) I messaged my supportive group I'm in on Facebook and I said, Someone please tell me why I'm fighting with a Catholic priest today. Oh, this is not a healthy, not a healthy choice. <laughs> but I said, listen, private adoption in the United States is an industry. Yeah. And he said, not really. And I screenshotted it and it is, and you know it is. And I, I want your listeners to know that it's $14 billion annually. Yeah. And the women who birth the children receive maybe a little stipend for prenatal care. I think I got a check for $2,000 that she told me to spend on heating oil, which I did. And the rest of the money goes to the not-for-profit agency, lawyers, the Commonwealth, and 
who knows what else, healthcare, I think when the child is in limbo, that doesn't cost, that baby went from my arms to the hospital into the adoptive parents' arms within I think seven or eight days. And you cannot tell me that that should cost a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. I would have handed that baby what willingly. A, what was that I just line? needed an intermediator. It was like being in the twilight zone. Well, I'm thinking about that line from the draft. It's just not coming to me. I'm terrible recollecting things on the spot, but there was a line in the draft about like basically increasing access to to white babies. Yes. Like what was the line of the there's, there well there's and if you if you want to talk about private adopt and I'm not talking about the the foster care system which I know things about because I've worked in that arena. I've, I've been a legal assistant on those cases and I know how those work. That's another broken system. I'm not the expert on that. Yeah. I'm lucky that my children were never removed from my custody by um, Department of Children and Families. And I firmly believe that Department of Children and Families is a broken system that runs yeah. parallel to this system. This is supposed to be the, the high road. This is yeah. supposed to be what what, you know, what, what we do behind closed doors, you know, it's not, they're not knocking on your door and your neighbors seeing them pull your crying kids out of your house. But does the secrecy serve us as a, as a whole, as a society? I don't think so. I think everyone should know that it costs a hundred thousand dollars to get an infant and that people do ask for a certain race. They do ask for a certain gender. They yeah. do reject children with disabilities. And that nobody wants to really think about that. Yeah. And I can understand and empathize with a couple or, or a single person who's yearned for a child and has saved money and scraped and, and you know, done soul searching about, will I get pregnant? Should I adopt through the state? Should I? And they decide, hey, what's right for me is an infant that I can raise and adopt. I get that. And I understand that perhaps if this is their one chance or maybe their one of two chances of having the family and the child that they want, that they don't want to take on a medically complex child, that's understandable. Mm -hmm. We have to remember that there are children in foster care in this country that are hospice children yeah. that are dying in institutions. And we can't, it's just a very dangerous line to, to tread where we've equated poverty with unfitness. I was born on a hippie commune. <laughs> I didn't have a birth certificate until I was six weeks old. I was essentially, I could have been lost to this world. Had my mom not left the commune and gotten me a birth certificate and social security number, I could have just been one of these kids that's there and there exists in this country. There's kids that are not, not on rules. And there's plenty of reasons why people do that. Sometimes it's an immigration issue. Sometimes it's um, I think, I think, you know, some of the people I know that are Native American families did that on purpose mm -hmm. because their children were being taken. And if the government didn't know the child existed, then it was a little harder to know to go get them. Yeah. Um, and so there's this interesting dichotomy of if you don't have a social security number or a birth certificate, you were born on U.S. soil. Are you subject to the laws and regulations of the U.S. Constitution? And it's and it's like you get into some weird conspiracy theory stuff and some libertarian stuff, but it's a decent question to ask. If you're not sending your child to public school and asking the state to 
finance your child's education, they can't really tell you that you have to vaccinate your child because you're not participating in that system. So there's this all this gray area mm -hmm. that I was raised in. And I you know you and I grew up very close to each other. I went to public schools. I certainly, I think, you know, had a somewhat, I would say average upbringing. It's like such a weird phrase because it really wasn't average. And I don't think anyone has this idyllic middle America. I don't think that really exists. I think everyone's got their twists and turns. Everyone's got a, a weird family member, an interesting situation, but um, I, it was for all intents and purposes, once we settled down and my siblings were born, I was a 4-H kid. I ran around barefoot. I, you know, we had healthy food and all of that. And I got the opportunity to go to some really amazing schools. And I kind of broke the rules by having a child early, but it was my decision. And I did think when I got pregnant at 19 and I had, I dropped mm -hmm. out of uh, university and I was going to a local community college. I did consider whether it was the right time. And I felt mm -hmm. a strong sense of conviction that I was going to give this, I was going to give birth to this child and I was going to raise it. And um, with, with or without um, his father and his father and I were both, re we never married each other, of course, but we both have husbands or his father has a wife <laughs> um, and uh, subsequent kids. Um, their family has three kids. Our family has three kids. And we've, we have a working friendship and the best I could have ever imagined it turning out, but I did have to go through court and I did, I joke about it, but lining up with all the, are the, all the harlots and their babies mm -hmm. getting your cheeks swabbed. And that is an interesting experience. <laughs> and you do feel a bit, uh, what's the word, livestocky mm -hmm. or something. This is to prove paternity. Paternity. It's just like your whole story is just showing so many layers of what it means to be human in this country. And I'm sure. And what it means to be birthed. Mm -hmm. And there's different degrees of that. And there's a lot of nuance there. Yeah. But being, you know, there's there's nothing stopping anyone from, I mean, there, there's certainly factors, but anyone can, anyone with a uterus can become pregnant and give birth. And it's up to them, you know, how they negotiate in the world and how that happens and what interventions they accept and what institutions they decide to be a part of. And certainly it's very standard to participate in capitalism and raise your kids in that. But what capitalism has the message that it's given i'm sure many of the women and people that listen to your podcast is you cannot parent without a lot of resources you would be selfish you would be maybe even evil mm -hmm. or that that phrase that I, I i just makes me want to punch republicans if you can't breed them you can't feed them don't breed them mm -hmm. and it's like well stop raping people please you know or if women, if one women of many abort, contradictions, abort, then we should be able to not pay child support and like all the stupid stuff. Yeah. And it's like, and then it's the same guys. I've heard it. I've heard the chatter. You know, I try to hang out with quality people, but every once in a while you start overhearing something and you're going, my, I'm nosy. I'll perk up. But that whole conversation about, 
they take such and such for my check every week and she has her hair done and her nails done and she's got a new boyfriend and the kid she's not using it for the right things and that kind of talk and it's like don't you want the mother of your child (sighs) to take care of herself and have a social life and be a whole person or is she just the woman that you have to give money to so she can buy your kid peanut butter I mean get off it and that's a different conversation than, hey, I'm paying child support and I and my I think my child's not being taken care of great. They're being left with the wrong people. They're being neglected. That's a different conversation. But why are we dinging a woman that we purportedly loved enough to have a romantic relationship with for taking care of themselves mm-hmm. while they raise your child? Why are we doing that? That's ugly. Yeah. Yeah. I want I want everyone to be okay and have resources and have the, the, and we know, I know for myself that those things are not about, they're often just about taking time for yourself and caring for yourself in a world that has taught us that our value has more to do with our accomplishments and, and our ability to raise children, impressive children, mind you, Mm. (laughs) get credit for just having children. They have to be impressive. (laughs) you know god forbid you have a kid who gets in trouble then you're then you're the worst yeah (laughs) you know yeah what did what did the mom do wrong and i don't usually hear well the dad's kind of you know a little edgy no wonder the kid turned out that it's it's well i blame the parents and i think the subtext is i blame the mom yeah yeah and there's all and then it gets even more interesting for me personally just not even on my own life just the reading I've done and academically this resurgence or surgeons, I should say of um, self-produced self uh, sex work that can be self-produced. So I'm talking about the only fans and the camming that um, people, if they choose can make content without a middle person, without a pimp or a agency or, and this has, this has, it's not something I've done, um, but it's something that I, I know people who do it. And there's this huge stigma about using your sexuality to gain capital. Uh-huh. Um, but it's this way where um, I have a friend who, um, you know, her child goes to bed or her child's at the other parent's house and she can make a decent amount of money yeah. in, in four or five hours in her, yeah. you know, she has a, whatever she has, a rumpus room or whatever. <laughs> and um, it's something that she's open about to her friends, but it's certainly not something she puts on her resume. Yeah, yeah. And why are, and so it's so interesting that when a woman takes control of her body and her sexuality and monetizes it for legit reasons, and even, and listen, even if she was using it for going to Cancun or even if she had an addiction problem, she's monetizing her sexuality. Yeah. And the only way that works is if primarily men will pay for it yeah but they don't want to see her as a mother and a sex worker they want to see her as a sex object and they want to see her in a different light when it comes to parenting and that's a healthy boundary in my opinion yeah but there are some people who have trouble um seeing women as more than one thing and I think that falls very heavily into this debate And this whole discussion about 
well, everyone knows how sex works and everyone knows how birth control works and everyone, you're an adult, you know, wrap it up, you know, put in an IUD, get on a pill. Um, we don't talk about, I think, I think some people are talking about the fact that for birth control, the onus financially, time-wise, hormonally is on the woman. Yeah, exactly. I've had horrible reactions, emotional problems from hormonal birth control methods. Um, we, you know, I know so many men who are like, I won't get a vasectomy. They have no desire to have more children, but there's something, I don't want to be neutered. <laughs> it's like, wh- why? I remember my ex in a fight that we had after I rejected him because he was being horrible saying, you just wanted me for my sperm. Mm-hmm. Like it's like it's like this. <laughs> yeah, like lucky us, like we get access. Just, men are just like throwing it in their socks, like it's some kind of. <laughs> and I'm not Ugh. disrespecting the fact that men can contribute to the making of a child. It's true, we can't do it alone. But let's not pretend that we're some. I mean, he wanted really wanted to paint me as a hunter or that I was a predator. And I remember his mother, him lying to his mom and saying that I had lied about my birth control situation because she was upset when we announced the second pregnancy because he wasn't working or working consistently. And I didn't, he never contributed financially. It was, that was not in, in it for me because I knew, I knew probably deep down that it was gonna be me in the end anyway. And because he had started acting up when I announced the second one, um, and that was very, that was planned. I mean, I had birth control in and he went with me to the doctor and we mm-hmm. removed it. Mm-hmm. And he lied to his mother and said that um, I had lied about my birth control situation and trapped him. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she really believed it. But um, the line that gets me with her, she, she benefited from our, me being with her son because he was out of her hair. He was off her living room floor. And he was financially supported by me. So she had an investment. And she also had, an, he, he didn't tell me when we met, but he had two children that he wasn't allowed to see mm. um, because of the way he behaved. And she had this whole complex about my, my grandchildren have been taken from me. Mm-hmm. Not my son has committed a crime. Yes. And he's not yeah. safe. Yeah. It was, they, it was the, they have been taken from me. So she used to write me these emails that were like, the other the other sort of intersectionality to use our women's studies words is that um, my ex is um, a black man um, who told me that he was, his mom's blacks and he identifies as black, but he also told me that he was, his father was Portuguese. So I, for three years, raised children thinking that they were a quarter Portuguese, a quarter African-American. And it turns out that that was not true. For some reason, he lied about his father's ethnicity to me. I still don't know the answer to that, but his father is a Puerto Rican man. Um, He's not someone I have a relationship with. I think he lives in Worcester. I just don't know. But that was an interesting piece of it, why he was ashamed of that or maybe ashamed isn't the right word, why he concealed that. But literally my kids used to go nuts for like Spanish music 
And then all of a sudden I was literally at the children's museum and I was having a conversation with another parent who is um, an adoptive father and his, some of his children were there and at least two of them um, had Puerto Rican heritage. And he was talking about things he did with them to expose them. And all of a sudden it clicked with me. I'm like, oh, my kids are Puerto Rican. <laughs> I, I kid you not. It was the most, this is what I'm talking about, like this series of surreal moments. Yeah. Because I've been accused of being very literal and I just sometimes just believe what people say and I hold that belief and it, I have to like, you have to get a little distance from it and go, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I love that. Like this <laughs> navigating, there's so much pressure on us as people who carry pregnancies um, and are supposed to make all these right decisions and are supposed to see and spot abuse and are supposed to navigate. Be smart. Be too smart. You're supposed to be too smart. Why? I, yeah. I, I had a couple people in my life that I thought were my friends say, well, what did you expect picking a guy like that up in Springfield? Yeah. But and meanwhile, it's like, like life is just navigating this series well I was real experiences I was in grief I was on a dating app yeah someone spotted me a mile away and someone was very very dishonest about who they were had he said on his profile hi I'm a felon I almost murdered the first mother of my two children while she was pregnant with our daughter I live on the floor of my mother's one-bedroom apartment in a bad neighborhood I have no car I was incarcerated two years ago. I'm married, by the way, he didn't mention that. Yeah. I'm married to someone who's going to claim your kids, my kids on your taxes. There was a restraining order. Then he relinquished his rights and they were still claiming my kids on their taxes. They were committing tax fraud, which shows how stupid you are because it's one thing to mess with. He used to call me the country mouse. It's one thing to mess with the country mouse, but I don't mess with the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're really mean I mean yeah. I can be mean too but I'm saying you relinquish these children all rights to get out of a child support arrears and now you're you and your wife whoever the hell she is I've never met her are claiming my kids who have been adopted by my husband yeah. on your taxes running to H&R Block the second you can and then my God bless my best friend because she hooked me up with her husband who's a tax attorney. And he was very, I was kind of embarrassed, but he just said, listen, you're going to have to wait an extra month. We're going to undo this. And every year that it kept happening, I kept being like, I can't believe this is still happening. I cannot believe this is still happening. And now my, my partner does our taxes and it doesn't happen anymore. But I got to, I, I found out my ex was married when my son was four months old in an H&R block. Mm -hmm. That's how I, I feel like uh, there, there are so many things we can learn and take away from this conversation, but I feel like a big, if we, if we look at this lens of just adopt, right? Like those right. two lovely right. words, just adopt. Yeah. Just give the, just give the baby to someone who will love it. Yeah. Just who make good choices. A just good, a don't good... get pregnant. Just and any of those. We'd be and remiss I... if we didn't acknowledge the tremendous influence that religious organizations have on the adoption industry yeah yeah and what's the first rule of business supply and demand mm -hmm. 
And if you can't manufacture your product, I mean, I guess you can kind of make a baby in a Petri dish and people do that and that's expensive too. But if you can't own DNA, if you can't own eggs, so we've got people selling their eggs, that's happening. We've got people donating their sperm, that's happening. We've got people making babies in laboratories, that's happening. We've got surrogacy. I mean, we, I don't know if you've talked about this on your podcast, but we have had, we have a tremendous boom of surrogacy in the Ukraine because it's the laws are favorable to surrogacy. So we just had a bunch of American babies in Ukrainian wombs during a civil war. And that's insane when you really think about that. And they were moving those women around. They were telling them they had to report places. And, and is that abuse? I don't know, but I, I would kind of lean towards that's financial opportunism. Yes, these women raised their hands and said, I will carry a zygote. Um, I think there's also a lot of Asian um, and a lot of Asian parents that are using Ukrainian surrogacy. There's also a lot of Asian parents that are using American surrogacy. So we have this interesting, I, I happen to work in healthcare and insurance, and um, we have this interesting thing where we're literally shopping for wombs based on the access to medical care and the laxness of their governmental regulations on essentially all of these rules that are all of these, we can't look at laws that control reproductive freedom and access to healthcare without looking at the ugly, ugly part that no one wants to look at, which is human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And then we get into all this stuff that I, you know, I've, this is part of my, what I do when I'm quiet, I research and I, I listen to podcasts and I read and um, there's tremendous privilege in being able to get pregnant, be certain that we have a partner, or if we're able to do it alone, that that's the right choice for us, where we pick the right person, the right year in our life, the right number in the bank account. We have a bedroom for them. We, there, there's tremendous privilege in saying, yeah, we're good to go. And we can't pretend that it's a moral failing to become pregnant when you don't feel like you have it all together. Yeah, there you go. I mean, right look there. at my my situation with my first husband. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a child and he was getting to be six, seven years old and I was married at that point. And I, he had um, had two older children. He was much older than I. And I wanted a kid. And once he got sick, I said, um, can you, can you just, can we just figure out a way to get me pregnant? And I know that you won't be here and bless him. He said, you know, I've had some treatments some cancer, cancer treatments that probably have affected my sperm. Mm -hmm. And I know that you want this. Mm -hmm. We had talked about doing foster care actually at, at some point he said, but it's important to me. And, and, and I know it's important to you to find someone to raise the children with. Mm. And that was very big of him. And it was what I needed to hear that I had permission to move on. And I truly believe, and I'm gonna cry a little bit, but that he meant who I'm with now, but I Mm. had to go through a hell of a valley to get there. And when I say I wake up grateful to be alive, that's not hyperbole. I am grateful that I survived that my children survived. And I think part of why my children survived is because of 
part of why I survived was my sheer will to keep them alive. Mm-hmm. And I did set that child on a different path, the child I relinquished. But when the Catholic priest from my high school on Facebook posts Monday morning, light, love and light and love has prevailed. It has not, sir. You, yeah, you this happened. Not, there's so many layers of this that are not love. <laughs> well, and you know, he is a, a priest who is uh, presumably, and I don't ask him these questions because it's none of my beeswax, presumably a celibate person. His lifestyle is not one where he's looking for a mate. It's not looking. So he's opted out essentially of the chance of unplanned pregnancy in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Just, just riffing here. That's the, way, that's the way the Catholic church usually works. And he is, um, so that's something he'll never experience unless he changes his mind. And he is running confessions. And his the thing that killed me was when he said, I know that it hurts women to get abortions because I hear them come to me and confess. And? And? That's, that's not a problem. We're allowed to be sad. You know what? I, I, one, time I, <laughs> one time I had, um, you know, I had a, a medical procedure that had nothing to do with abortion or reproductive health. It was uncomfortable. I had a root canal once. It was uncomfortable. Yeah in the middle of that root canal, I was like, get me the hell out of here. Yeah. I say all the time, I regret my toe surgery. Does that mean no one should ever get toe surgery? Yeah. The toe surgery should be outlawed. It's outlawed toe surgery. Yeah. Oh my goodness. We could probably talk for so long. Um, but I, I hope that this conversation shows people (laughs) the first boards I wrote where it's not that simple, but I think the truth is I probably never brought, I've been a person who's not afraid to go to therapy and I've been in therapy off and on since I was a teen. I don't think I ever brought up having a medical abortion unless it was in context of my, the relationship I had been in at the time. I went to therapy about relinquishment for two years. Yeah. Yeah. And so when people are like, well, don't you feel better that he's off and, and that you gave him life? Yeah. I'm, I don't regret one bit that that little boy is on the planet. Not one bit, but what I had to go through, I would not wish it on Donald Trump. Mm. And to be dealing with raising two children because I had to stop working in order to insulate my kids and keep everybody safe and heal. I I, I had been, you know, fairly comfortable making bills and I had to go be poor. And I had to go live in a rural place without much access to anything. I did fine, but that wasn't, that was a choice that I was able to make. And I don't want someone to have to do that and pop out a hundred thousand dollar golden baby if that's not what they want to do. And we're going to come into a, I I hope and pray that nobody else has to do that. I don't, I don't think people should have to deliver their babies like that in the cover of darkness and it is a bit of insight into you know people use graphics like the coat hanger and this and that but like I think those days have passed and there are going to be other horror stories that we start to see and there's going to be and we know humans and we know 
are in society. There's going to be extortion. There's going to be blackmail. There's going to be people who stand to profit off of secrecy. And that's what I've learned in all of this. And what I want to just, I know we're finishing up here, but what I want to bring back is I urge any woman, any child, any person, any, any person who is vulnerable, which is everyone at some point, everyone has a moment of weakness. Please keep in mind that if someone who is supposed to care about you and supposed to love you and supposed to be on your side doesn't want you to be stronger, doesn't want you to, it just doesn't make sense. The way that they're treating you doesn't make sense. And they're asking you to keep secrets for them. Just really look at that because the way that our laws are designed for quote unquote medical privacy, personal privacy, HIPAA, all of those. And the way that some of our court laws are designed where we publish a drunk driver in the paper, but we don't publish a wife beater. We publish a rapist who rapes a child, but we don't necessarily put someone who you know, maybe assaulted their wife. Mm-hmm. Those, you have to just, I just urge anyone to please really consider. And I don't think secrets are bad. I think if you have a friendship or you have a, a close relationship with someone and they tell you something in confidence, But if you're keeping secrets that benefit someone, especially financially or or with with social status, and they're not treating you kindly, you need to reevaluate where they're coming from. And unfortunately, you know, I I can speak from experience. It's very easy when you're feeling at odds, whatever that means for you, to get caught up in a world that you're not prepared for. But when I, when I, in retrospect, again, I've been doing a lot of therapy about this. When it started to get dicey was when I was covering for someone else out of embarrassment. Yeah. We just have, I think that, you know, that's, I'm, that's why I'm so grateful you're doing this because people hear the word abortion and it's like, they want to flame out at it, but we don't want, we don't want this to be the way that it is but we've adapted to the world around us. And that's, this is a way birth control and healthcare access is a way that we've been able to claw our way back from, again, going back to the being in line and establishing maternity and getting your swab, being treated like an animal. And, you know, I want to keep my bank account. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just signed a lease with my building. I want to have my name on the lease equally. And we all do our best with the circumstances we've been given, but I'm at the point where I'm not going to be quiet and listen to people talk about things that they're never going to have to face and put their religious views on people I care about's bodies. It's not going to happen. Why? I mean, what do we stand to gain by sitting back and watching? And if you, and if, and that's not to say that everyone has to speak up and yell. If all you can do is sit tight and keep yourself as safe as possible, that's what you should do. But we can't just all roll over because there's too much at stake. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your many layered story. Um, I'm sure there are people that will resonate with all different parts of it. And for me, the takeaway is just more evidence of how very messy this all is and there's a lot of threads and when i i want i can say that i am someone whose life 
was partially saved by access to um, safe medical abortion. And I am someone who made use of a disgusting, in my opinion, private adoption system. And I used it um, to save a child and I don't regret that, but that doesn't mean the system isn't sick. Yeah. We should not be selling babies. We should, we, we as Christians, as women, as nonprofit agencies that receive favorable tax status, we should not be profiting off the sale of poor people's babies, yeah. period, end of story. And I'll, yeah. I'll die on that hill, <laughs> I'll die on the hill. Yeah. That baby, I, there should have been a hug and a handshake and a couple signatures. There should not have been a hundred thousand dollars changing hands. Yeah. Ooh. Well, thank you for sharing. I will. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Uh, I'm just going to keep digesting and our listeners are going to keep digesting and you're going to keep doing the work you're doing in the world to um, shine light on, on the messiness. Thank you. That's all I can do. And it's all we all can each can do. Thank you for hosting. Thanks for listening. And as always, please consider sharing, rating, and reviewing this podcast. It helps me reach a wider audience and invites more people to thrive after abortion. If you're someone who chose abortion and find yourself struggling, hiding, or wishing you could move beyond your experience, head over to my website and book a free call. We'll talk about how you can start living the life you made your choice for.